The best and the brightest Yale women graduates on climate, feminism and the future. Okay, well, welcome to my podcast. Uh, This is Friday, April the something or other. I think it's the 27th. I'm going to do my uh, quick roundup. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's hit my uh, Twitter feed even in the last hour. So let's kick off. The first uh, issue is about a... A very interesting trial that's come out in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine. This is uh, from Jeremy Keenan and colleagues who looked at the value of mass drug administration of azithromycin to reduce childhood mortality in sub-Saharan Africa. And they hypothesized that if you dished out this stuff to all preschool children, you would cut their mortality rates. These workers had done a lot of the previous work looking at its effects on trachoma, which is an eye uh, problem, which is uh, endemic in many parts of Africa and causes blindness. So they've looked at huge numbers, 190,000 children identified in three countries, Malawi, Niger and Tanzania. And the punchline was that overall they cut mortality rates of under five children, post-neonatally that is, uh, by uh, 13.5%, which sounds great. In fact, one of the uh, Twitter comments was stunning findings. But I do have uh, some concern. The, the first, my first concern is that um, if you look at it, the results by country, there was no impact in Malawi or Tanzania, uh, no statistically significant impact where... And these are countries where the under five mortality rate has fallen steadily over the last decade with other public health measures. Secondly, azithromycin is a last ditch drug for multi-drug resistant bugs. In fact, uh, the current outbreak in Pakistan of uh, multi-drug resistant typhoid, the only drug that seems to be having any effect is azithromycin. Uh, And uh, therefore, should we be giving millions of children routinely such powerful drugs? What are the side effects? What are the potential effects on resistance uh, in the community? And to be fair to the authors, they absolutely pinpoint this as an issue. And they say that they're following up to look at resistance patterns. And it'll be very interesting to see what they find. I guess the third thing is an ethical issue. Um about mass drug administration. um, Would, for example, I'm being provocative here, would the US allow mass drug administration to deal with their very high maternal death rates, which they were the only country that hasn't seen a decline over the past um, 30 years? Uh, You know, would, would you give every pregnant woman a statin? for example, if they think it's related to that, or would they give antibiotics like azithromycin? We don't know that some of these women aren't dying of infections um, because uh, maternal sepsis is a problem in every country and is difficult to diagnose. I'm being provocative, but I think these do raise issues. And um, so anyway, that's that one. The next one that came out, also this morning, actually, 
was a very interesting systematic review in the, the Cochrane uh, Collaborating Centre has published this. And it comes uh, from uh, a variety of people. Uh, a friend of mine, Ari Kumaraswamy, I think was the lead on this. Uh, from uh, He's a professor of Obzangani in Birmingham. And my old colleagues, um, I called them the Turkish Mafia, uh, Ozge Tunchalp and Metin Gurmazoglu, who are brilliant uh, obstetric researchers at WHO. Basically, they found from a review of 140 studies, if you give two drugs for postpartum hemorrhage, and remember, bleeding at childbirth is the biggest killer of women uh, for maternal deaths. If you give two drugs, it's better than one. It cuts the rate of postpartum hemorrhage uh, from about 10% to 7%. And that's not insignificant. Um, They did find that side effects are slightly higher, uh, but I suspect they will need to revise WHO guidelines. And just as we give now two drugs for malaria and multiple drugs for all kinds of bacterial infections, I think uh, we could end up with a situation where it's recommended to give a two-drug treatment uh, for postpartum hemorrhage. Okay, I've got some uh, more worrying news. Um, the first story, which I picked up from the University of Minnesota, actually, is about mad camel disease. University of Minnesota puts out a very interesting um newsletter from their center for uh i think it's called infectious disease research and action and this is about italian and algerian researchers who found new evidence of a prion disease in three dromedary camels in an algerian slaughterhouse and they're calling it camel prion disease cpd and this is uh, has echoes of what we experienced in Britain way back, nearly 30 years ago, with BSE, uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And prion diseases, you know, these are these weird semi-infectious agents, and they contort proteins and trigger a domino-like effect in neighbouring proteins in the brain, which leads to a terrible severe neurogenitive, neurodegenerative disease. And uh, one of my former colleagues, a pediatrician at UCL, died of a uh, of Kreutzfeld-Jakob disease, which um, is thought to be caused by prion a few years back, and it's a terrible illness. Um, now, prion diseases affect humans and animals, uh, but transmission across species is rare, uh, although it did happen with BSE. So what's happening with camels? Well, we're not quite sure. They've taken brain samples, found that uh, they have prions, and more worrying is that they found that 3% of all camels brought for slaughter over a five-year period had the symptoms of this condition, neurologic signs, tremors, aggression, uh, overactivity, and weird up-and-down movements of the head. Now, you may think this is all a bit obscure, but it's also found that uh, Canadian researchers have found uh, prions in a chronic wasting disease in deer and their relatives. And we know that can be transmitted to primates. So with the globalization of food, um, 
This is an issue. And as Michael Osterholm, who's the director of the University of Minnesota Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, says the whole issue of prions and meat consumption is a new and much more serious topic we need to look at. Uh, there's no evidence for transmission from camels, but the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. The second slightly less worrying issue is the spread of rabbit plague in Switzerland. Um, I've just come from Switzerland and uh, apparently uh, rabbit plague or rodent plague uh, is a bacterial infection that medics call tularemia. And it's increasing dramatically in Switzerland, where 130 confirmed cases last year. That's four times as many cases of Francisco Tularensis as they normally find. And uh, it's spread by ticks that live on rabbits. So if you're wandering around Switzerland having a nice time and then you develop fever, headaches, muscle pain, enlarged lymph nodes or red spots on the skin, you might have picked up rabbit plague. That's something to tell your friends. But actually, you do need treatment because I shouldn't joke. uh, If it's not treated, uh, it can lead to serious issues. Right. uh, Those are the uh, bad news stories, but I've got two good news stories. Okay, well, the first is from Barcelona, which I picked up on Reuters. And this is about entrepreneur Joseph Esteba, who is an entrepreneur. He's a innovator and he's founded a, a company called Map for All, M-A-P-P-4 all a l l and he is disabled he uses a wheelchair and has done for 20 years and he got fed up with uh never knowing which buildings in a city were convenient for wheelchair users or for the blind hearing impaired and others so he's come up with an app that enables uh any one of the billion people in the world who have a disability to check out when they get to a city, which buildings or shops or whatever have really good uh, access. So that's a good step. Uh, And second is that I see from Xinhua, the Chinese agency, that over 30,000 girls are being vaccinated against cervical cancer in northern Tanzania around Mwanza, which is great. There are now seven countries in Africa that are using the vaccine to protect against cancer. That's uh, Uganda, Rwanda, Botswana, Mauritius, Seychelles and South Africa to go along with Tanzania. And I didn't realise that cervical cancer is the most common cancer in Tanzania. It kills more women than any other form of the illness. So those are two good stories to finish with before we go to our interview. And the interview this week is uh, with four very bright uh, Yale Women Graduates, and we had a conversation about how they see the world, uh, what they view about climate change, and various other interesting things ranging from feminism to gun control to drug use. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Anthony Costello, and I'm joined by four brilliant young Yale students, postgraduate students, Kayoko from Japan, Hannah from Chicago, Alyssa from Canada, 
and Emma from Vermont, Vermont which is the home of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and I've got very open questions and we're just going to have a conversation and uh, you can speak close to the mic. Um, how do you see the situation with climate change? Like Any thoughts, global, Emma? In the global context, in the U.S. context, or what are you thinking? Either. Either. Wow. Um, honestly, I think it's a little, well, at the federal level, bleak in the U.S. Um, but, yeah, from, like, my conversations that I've had with my friends, who are, like, all very concerned about this issue, it's an interesting sort of mental game you have to play with yourself while acknowledging how overwhelmingly complicated everything is. Um but somehow figuring out a way to simultaneously acknowledge that in some corner of your brain, but also find like the perseverance to not get overwhelmed by that. Um, I think is an interesting thing that I've talked a lot about with my friends, um, particularly in the context of the U S and like the inaction um, at the federal level and like the rolling back of, every, of regulations and all of that. But on the flip side, like if you're trying to look at it in a more positive light, um, I think it has spurred some more, action and excitement at like the state and local level um yeah just do you think we're in a different era now with students and rethinking the way the world works um you know i remember 1968 before i got to university i hasten to add um where you know it seemed like the whole world was being redesigned by the student movements and that was a very pivotal time I always think 2016 was a pretty crucial year with this change in politics and the concerns and almost like old people versus young people. I don't know. Does anyone have any thoughts about that? Um, yeah, I think there's been a lot of really powerful student movements over the last couple of years, um, even related to like the Women's March, um, like Black Lives Matter, um, which many students are involved in. Um, and, uh, walks for climate change, um, and with the gun control as well. Um, we can see like young people taking initiative and using their voices, um, to speak truth to power to try to make meaningful change in the worlds that they're going to live in and that they're growing up in. Um, so in some ways, um, I also find it very easy to be a bit depressed about, um, uh, the about climate change and our movement forward, but I do see young people as a way to um, uh, take take this movement forward. Do you blame my generation? Do you think us baby boomers who, you know, my mother left school at fourteen and I got a free university education, medical school. Uh, you know, I've seen property prices rise. I've got a pension. And, you know, my children tell me that uh, we're the first generation where our children are going to be worse off than us. Do you feel that way? Or do you still think that yeah, the future is rosy for you as Americans and that you're going to make it and it's all going to be great? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a tough position and a tough question. Um, I think that in the beginning, in terms of uh, the baby boomer generation, there were kind of, there was this abundance of resources given kind of how quickly 
um, systems had been changing involving in, in the kind of the industrialization of agriculture and uh, urbanization and all of these issues. Um, so I think you guys had it easier, perhaps. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, I think that my generation and among my community and my friends, there's a lot of optimism around kind of the resources that we have at our disposal and the technologies that we can use to kind of go ahead and work through these kind of difficult systems. Yeah, I think it's also an interesting place in that I don't think that we are sort of, I don't think it's necessarily preordained or anything that we are going going definitely to be worse off, but it is interesting to know that it's very likely that we will like face these enormous challenges um, and to just acknowledge the sort of massive mobilization that is going to be required if we want to make it so that we are not sort of a worse off generation, um, which again is like an interesting mind game to play with yourself, like, like acknowledging the enormity of the problem, but then also acknowledging as you're talking about in your um, speech or your talk today about how there are all of these interesting opportunities to sort of change systems at a massive scale globally that will have the, like they could make things a lot better if we, tackle climate change in a way that is equitable um, and does like address all of the sort of complex sy systems that are entangled in the issues of climate change. I think that we do have the opportunity to make things better in ways that people might not necessarily like that might not be immediately evident to people. Yeah, sorry. Which is just that I also feel that this kind of dichotomy of, you know, our generation versus a previous is kind of very unique to the West. And that kind of it's it's very much an issue of economy and like the, the resources that, you know, like America, Europe has had within the last century and that, you know, young people elsewhere are going through kind of very different conversations with their families around like what their responsibilities are and how they're different from the past and like what and the resources they have available compared to like their previous generation. So I think that's kind of an important point. So you see, I don't think there's a great golden age in the past. I did, I had opportunities certainly that my parents didn't have. But when I look back to my time at being, I think you have so much more opportunities in other ways. I mean, I think the internet has been, you know, probably the greatest human invention since the printing press. And I, I and of course, it's got a downside to it. We're, we're talking just after all the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica stuff. But I think there is, um, I think there are many opportunities. And I, my question is, do you think your aspirations are for a better quality of life rather than a better, a higher level of wealth or, or rather wealth in a different sense? I think, you know, when I, you know, when I was young, everyone thought we've got to get a higher income and all the rest of it. But I think there's more to life than that. <laughs> and I just wonder. So we have somebody from Japan here. So do you think, I mean, Japan is an interesting place because it's fantastic. I've, I've been to Japan. I absolutely love it. Everything works well. You've got incredibly low uh, mortality rates, high education rates. Everything seems great. But maybe are people happy? Are your generation happy or not? Well, I, um, in general, I don't think our generation is happy um 
there are um, very complicated issues in Japan now, um, including aging population and politics are also very complicated now, like East Asian um, communications or uh, as like relationships have been very tough these days. Do you, do you mean the politics of kind of with China, Korea, North Korea yeah. and all of that, mm-hmm. that you're in a region that's politically sensitive? Yeah, I think so. So we are facing something um, like a difficult time, I think. Um, so we have to think about more um, more about the relationship with each other. But now like the world, all of these countries are, you know, being more nationalist yeah yeah so but i think we have to come up with a better way to collaborate or communicate with other countries uh, at who um it's interesting that japan was in the lead on thinking about how to deal with aging populations and they're investing i i'm a close friend of the director of aging at who and he spent a lot of his time going to Japan because they were really committed to this. And I think that is a massive issue, uh, partly as I get older myself, but also looking at the figures on loneliness are staggering. Something like half of all 75-year-olds are lonely in the UK and certainly in America as well. And if you're lonely, you get depressed. And if you're depressed, you you have to take drugs, you feel sicker. And it it always strikes me that we're always looking for technological solutions and apps. and mobile. But actually, there's a social solution here about trying to get cooperation and bringing people together. You, you may be familiar with this, but wasn't there um, a program in the UK where um, I think postal workers were um, – in 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 part of their responsibilities for delivering packages and doing their um their job they also interacted with like elderly people who they were serving and i think that was shown to have um benefits to the quality of life of the the senior citizens ah that that's <laughs> very interesting so they use the postal service because so, yeah. they're visiting every day that's very interesting. Yeah. I didn't know about that. Although I think one-off things are not as good. I mean, you can't expect your yeah. postal worker, I'm sure the post service or yeah. DHL or Amazon would. Yeah, exactly. Well, but, yeah. but I think I've done a lot of work on peer groups, and mm-hmm. I just think getting people together in a social environment is what's fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, just as a question, how many of you are in sympathy groups? You don't even know what a sympathy group is. So to me, a sympathy group is the is the next group that you join outside the family. Okay. So in your family, you have your five people. If you read Robin Dunbar, who talks about this a lot, about then you have the sympathy groups and then you have the next level of grouping. And then the Dunbar number is 150, which is yeah. the limits of the social brain. You've probably read about that. But the sympathy group is maybe 10, 15 people and it hunters hunting groups and uh, gatherers gathering groups and Greek philosophy was done in groups and uh, farmers groups, finance groups, credit groups, choirs, sports teams, uh, theatre is in groups, music is in groups. So we've got a global representation here. What do you do in groups? Um. I think my PhD cohort is really great group. Um, 
Exactly. Yeah. So actually, part yeah. of being a, a postgraduate student mm -hmm. is being in a group that is supportive because it's quite a stressful time doing a PhD. Mm -hmm. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think Yale School of Public Health has a really good um, community. Um, it makes us feel like we are in the family. And I was actually not feeling well last month, but all of my friends helped me make food and they brought me like, gifts and letters and emailed me every day. And that just helped me so much mentally and physically. Fantastic. That's, that's really interesting. And I think... You know, my my son is at university in the UK, and his university had seven suicides in the last eighteen months, which horrifies me. And and it's a stressful time being a student. You're all mature postgraduates. You all look very old to me, but sorry, that was a joke. Um, but as undergraduates, I think it's a very stressful time. And I, it's interesting that you say how supportive the group. What about for uh, relaxation? Are you any of you in sports teams or choirs or Emma? Yes. Well, so I've recently joined, um, there's a Yale Graduate Women's Touch Rugby Club, <laughs> which I had absolutely no experience with prior to this semester. Um, but I recently joined. It's very fun. Um, That's I think right. it's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, which has just been a great way to sort of be part of a group because like in high school, I did sports and all of that. And then in undergrad, I was part of clubs. I haven't done that as much in um, my master's program. Also to clarify, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of pretend that I have more academic training than I do. I'm not a postgraduate. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm a master's student, but um, postgraduate. Yeah, yeah, true. Postgrad, post undergraduate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so one of my friends suggested that we join this rugby team, which has been really very fun and great. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Any anyone in a music group or a theatre group? <laughs> so Calco is in a. We've got some lonely people here, Hannah and Alyssa. Obviously, you need a few more sympathy groups, but sorry, what do you do? Oh, like like exercise classes and stuff, um, like spinning and things like that. With how many are in a spinning class? Maybe fifteen. Ah, that's yeah, interesting. And yoga and, yoga, and I do yoga. Yeah, yoga too. Talking before and after class, that kind of stuff. Anyone do theatre? Pol politics? Are any of you politically active? So, Hannah, you look a bit lonely here. I'm a bit worried about you. I prefer total solitude in my exercise. Oh, do you? Yes, I run. But I think otherwise, yeah, there's lots of other different ways to get involved. First of all, I don't want to discount kind of the just the social networks that we have here. I think especially among women, you know, the idea of a sympathy club, I think is is kind of just naturally part yeah. of like most friendships. Um, but also, yeah, there's lots of other, um, I kind of really, um, here at Yale, my interests are um, kind of beyond the school of public health and that like I'm particularly interested in how the environment interacts with public health. And so I do a lot of kind of work with the, the School of Environmental Science here. And um, yeah, like I appreciate the kind of diversity of student groups that allow me to kind of expand my interests beyond like my very, very specific dissertation focus. Yeah, and also the size of the Yale University is, I think it's like about the right size. You know, it's not yeah. too small, but not too large. So we can interact with people in other departments and collaborate very easily. And everyone is reachable and accessible. Okay, so I just want to ask you lastly about the future. And also as a sideline on that is your views on feminism. 
So in the last year, we've had the whole Harvey Weinstein stuff, the Me Too movement. And I think politically it's true that people are getting much more active again with the polarization of politics in America and elsewhere. How do you see, and of course, the gender pay gap stuff, which is pretty horrifying, actually. Are you, would would you call yourself feminists? How do you view the future for women? And a, the final thing linked to that is, are you optimistic? Do you all want to have children? Or are you all, are there worries around that? Or you think you're just, you know, anything Big questions. Let's do feminism generally. Anyone want to kick off? Sure. Um, I would say yes, I'm a feminist um, in that I define feminism as the idea that, you know, all people are equally valuable and should be treated as such, um, which I think when you think about it like that, pretty much everyone should be on board with that idea. Um, in terms of optimism for the future, I guess, I think that this, you know, the, all the conversation around Me Too, um, I think for a lot of people has been very eye-opening. I think for a lot of men has been very eye-opening in terms of, which to me is, and to a lot of my, like, female friends has been, not ironic, but it's just something that we all, you know, accept, or not accept, but, like, acknowledge as part of life and has been a part of our lives forever. And um, I think for a lot of men, it has been very eye-opening to realize the extent of the problem. So in terms of that, I'm a little, I'm optimistic in a way that this can be a way to sort of just shed light on this issue and how this issue permeates pretty much all all industries, all aspects of all industries. Um, so in terms of bringing awareness, I'm optimistic on that. Um, with regards to kids, um, that's like, um, like way down the line. Down the line. <laughs> Probably I'd like to have kids. I do like think about that in terms of climate change, bringing it back to that. Really? as like Yeah, I've had lots of conversations with my friends about that in terms of on a more theoretical level, but like, can you yeah. like justify bringing a kid? And if we are so uncertain about that, but then also I personally just like love little kids. And so yeah. I probably will have, I don't know. I'm also a feminist um, with the same definition that I'm a, um, gave. Um, and like I, your prime minister. <laughs> yes. Justin, Justin Trudeau. Justin. Yes. Um, so yes, I'm I'm a feminist and um I am optimistic about the future. I think um in many societies and industries women are um their voice is our voice is becoming more powerful um and getting closer to that of the voice of um our male peers and I think that's really important and I think it's um I see that as the only direction that it's going in right now. Um and um Oh, with kids. I think my decisions around kids aren't even just about whether um, you think the world is going yeah. to be a good place or not in the future. But I, I've thought about the climate change implications of having kids as yeah. well um, and whether um, you'd be putting the, bringing them into a world that um, wouldn't be great to live in. So I think before when you were talking about the older generation and our generation, a lot of the time when I'm thinking about climate change and the implications on health and, and just the environment in general – um, I'm more drawn to thinking about the next generation and how um, the decisions we make now and the decisions that the previous generation has made are going to actually have the biggest impact on them. Mm. Thank you. Hannah. Yeah. Um, 
also a self-identified feminist, and I think that the um, conversations happening in the U.S. are, um, yeah, incredibly important and eye-opening and also just kind of increasing in frequency, which is really a cool thing. Um, but also more of a realist, I think that even when we look at things like you work on maternal and child mortality, um, we've made tremendous progress, but we still have so much left to go. And, you know, when we think about kind of women's rights at the most basic level, um, kind of even before we can have some of these other conversations, I think, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but yeah, also hopeful. Um, and for kids, no comment. <laughs> or at least the same commentary also, of course, as a graduate student, we also, I mean, something that's kind of naturally on all grad students' minds is the kind of timeline involved and, you know, yeah. and also like, yeah, still the issue of having, you know, like a powerful career as a scientist and, yeah, as a parent. And if that's possible. <laughs> well, um, I was thinking about Japan, the situation in Japan. I think we are a little bit behind about this feminist movement. Um, even nowadays, raising your voice is still a little bit hard thing to do. And if you look at the population of like politicians, medical doctors, or lawyers, or the professors in universities, um, female is really, really underrepresented. So... I'm actually invited to uh, go to this panel discussion this month, like in a week or so, um, to talk about um, how we can um, increase the number of women, female researchers in the universities. Um, but I think that kind of activity is still very few in Japan. So I, I hope we can increase the number of these you know, symposiums or the places we can talk about these issues. I, I think that's a starting point now for Japan. And hopefully it'll be better soon. I'm going to ask a supplementary question just because I'm interested. <laughs> I may include it or not, but have you got a whiz off? No. You haven't? Just, um, just uh, your generation, um, drugs, alcohol, smoking. How do you see that? Being, uh, you're not identifiable here, so you can say whatever you like. Um, uh, you know, I was in the 70s, your age, and um, it was a big cannabis smoking time. Um, I actually didn't at, un at undergraduate level, but later on I was living with a dissolute bunch of people, and I used to have <laughs> a few puffs of cannabis on a Saturday evening, which I liked because it made you good. But I did notice that I still felt the the effects on the Monday morning and I've become quite anti-cannabis because I think I've seen some disastrous consequences for some people particularly young adolescents um, who have psychotic breakdowns and the, what the contribution of cannabis is to that I also don't drink alcohol I've become a bit of a teetotaler for the for reasons actually because I take a medicine that I'm not supposed to drink but actually I've really liked not drinking and I think all of this, but I'm just wondering how many of your friends smoke? Do you think is smoking a bit taboo now? Are they big boozers like they are in Britain in universities or are they into more exotic drugs? Or do you think you're a more abstemious generation than us? Be very open. And by smoking, you mean yeah. cannabis? No, I mean cigarettes, cigarette. cigarettes, but you can yeah. then talk about cannabis as well. Is that the... When my son, who's 20, came and w he went to a course in New York, 
he said it was amazing because none of them were drinking alcohol because it was illegal for them. And he said they were all smoking dope. And yet he was, all his generation in UK would be drinking heavily. Um, well, I disclaimer, I don't think I'm any expert on like generational trends of anything, (laughs) but, um, I, in terms of smoking cigarettes, um, I, it's very interesting just like from my own personal experience, um, I've never smoked, but, um, among friends who do, it's like, it's, you know, just like a classic example, not of peer pressure, but just of like group norms. Like I have groups of friends who it's very common among certain subsects yeah. and then other friends who would never. Um, I like there's, I, yeah, I, don't, I really don't know the trends, but it always irks me when my friends smoke. Cause it's just, um, we've like our generation has grown up with the evidence so abundantly clear of the health consequences. Right. Um, but I don't know. That's just a personal thing. Um, yeah. Drinking. Drinking definitely happens um and like what about drinking in terms of like binge drinking or yeah is there a lot of binge drinking yeah. in the university yeah i would say that there is um yeah i again like i i don't know any of the statistics or i haven't looked into it but um and what are the commonest sort of recreational drugs is it ecstasy cocaine is it new i'm stuff? really a very boring person when okay. it comes to this and so i don't know <laughs> well, you're i know i'm really really annoying <laughs> Alyssa, are you a degenerate? <laughs> I don't think so, but um, no. So I, I think with regards to cigarette smoking, I think in some, in many circles, I think it's gone out of favor yeah. um, because I think of what Emma was mentioning, just um, being taught from like a pretty young age that there's a lot of evidence indicating that it's not mm-hmm. good for you. Um, but I've... I noticed when I was in Lebanon this summer, um, there's a very different kind of relationship with smoking, you know, in other parts of the world, um, as I'm sure you're familiar with, mm-hmm. where I think it's it's very cool and common for for young people our age or younger um, to to be smoking cigarettes more so than I've noticed like in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. So you're more clean living in the United States. No, I don't think so. I mean, I people are drinking yeah. and. Yeah, in, with regards to tobacco, I think yeah. I think so. Drinking is quite heavy. I think people Cannabis are drinking. Use. I think people yeah. are yeah. Um, and other drugs like yeah. we have, you know, many like drug related epidemics going on in the United yeah. States right now. Um, obvi- the opioids. Yeah. Right. So like the op- opioid epidemic, um, crack, cocaine. It's there's yeah lots of sub- substance use here as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have so much to add. I just would kind of echo the fact that the landscapes of drug use here are so regionally and socially disparate that kind of what's going on on a college campus, especially like one like Yale is going to be certainly not in the absence of drugs, but a very different kind of drug use pattern. Um, And even among like undergraduates where like binge drinking is super, super common versus graduate students who... I don't, I don't really know. I, I, sh- I probably shouldn't speak to that. <laughs> um, but <laughs> too busy. Um, yeah, but also I think your point about, um, you know, kind of some of the worries that you have about cannabis use. I yeah. think it's, it's an interesting time to be talking about them because, you know, we are kind of working through legalizing cannabis throughout the U.S. And, um, of course, the evidence is so different than tobacco. But that's kind of like our kind of like 
the equivalent of our generation, I think. And so I think that there, and like now that, you know, there is regulations and kind of some science happening, I'm, I'm, you know, really interested to see kind of how that works through our generation compared to yours and tobacco, or at least in the U.S. Yeah, thank you. Japan. (laughs) It's all booze in Japan. It's a drink. Yes, uh, yeah, drink. Um, and also tobacco is a huge issue still yeah. in Japan. Yeah. Um, there was a group of uh, professors um, from Japan and also from the U.S. Um, who tried to um, ban the tobacco, like smoking in like public spaces, like restaurants or university campuses. But it actually didn't, well, I, I don't know if I can say it, 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 it didn't go well. Um, um yeah there was a lot of criticism from the public and yeah like a twitters and uh, like facebook and uh, there are so many um opinions by the public and uh, it seemed really hard to deal with that and i'm still not sure how to um handle with this like a social sns movement yeah SNS. Yeah, um, like a uh, Twitter and Facebook, and uh, oh. you know when when you wait, social network. Social network. Right. Yeah, and yeah. then uh, um, when the professors tried to make this movement, um, all of these people were criticized by. I don't know who they are. They're all um, anonymous, but yeah, they had a lot of mean comments from <laughs> the public. Well, it, what staggers me, just to finish, is when I was. If somebody had said to me 20 years ago that in Britain you would ban cigarettes from pubs and restaurants, mm-hmm. I would have laughed out loud. <laughs> and then it suddenly happened in Ireland first, and then we brought it into the UK. And it's been fantastic, actually. I, I As an ex-smoker, mm-hmm. and it's more difficult to give up smoking than give up alcohol, I can tell you. Mm-hmm. Smoking is very addictive. But it's so nice not to be in smoky environments. Mm-hmm. So when you go to countries where that doesn't exist, yeah. it, you really notice it, actually. And parts of Europe are like that with heavy smoking. But anyway, thank you very much. We've had Calco, Hannah, Alyssa and Emma from Yale. And I don't think they've said anything too outrageous. <laughs> I don't think you're going to get arrested by your dean. <laughs> but anyway, thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much for listening to this week's uh, podcast. If you know someone who might benefit from this conversation, please do tell them and help us to grow our community. And, of course, do check out or sign up to my blog at www.antonycostello.net. If you sign up, you'll get an email every week which links to the blog and podcast. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.